This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. So true confession time. I just recorded all of these a few hours ago and went through the whole process and got everything stitched together, got the audio processed, and somehow or another, I ended up deleting the wrong files. I've never done that before. I've had audio issues before. I've had other you know, weird things happen that are usually my fault, sometimes not, but I've never deleted the wrong files before. So we're just going to do this one again. I'm on a beer, so I'm just going to pour myself a large glass of wine and a goblet. And we're just going to go from the beginning and... Uh, Make sure the wine can keep up the enthusiasm level that I had the first time I recorded these. So let's strap in and see what we got. First up, Jeremy Hopkins wanted to chime in in the discussion about candy cabs and what's the best combo of CRT plus chassis that you could get. And while I really appreciate the time Jeremy took to go through all of this, and I will read it all out, I do want to preface this with the advice that I gave last week, I am absolutely standing by, and that my strong opinion is the best candy cab you could buy is the one that you could verify with your own eyes that is working in good condition. There's no burn in, nothing crazy. It doesn't pop and spark when you turn it on. And it's the same advice I would give with an RGB monitor. Well, what's the best RGB monitor? The one that you could get, that you could go drive to pick up, that you could verify looks good and isn't going to be a scam. Now, that's obviously neither of those are the right answer, but that is my honest, very strong opinion on it. And then, of course, it's, well, what's the best RGB monitor for your needs? What's the size? What's the the mask? All of that is secondary. And while, once again, no disrespect to Jeremy, that's what all of Jeremy's advice is. If you have the option of getting multiple, if you're a collector and you have a bunch, if you're just a crazy person like me and you want to know the answer to the question, This is for you. This is not for people that just want to get a candy cap. My advice and rambles of last week were probably, I I don't want to say better advice, but hopefully you know what I mean, because this is, I mean, this is a compliment. But anyway, enough rambling aside, let's just read exactly what Jeremy said. And while I don't have the ability to verify a lot of this, uh, I have heard other people kind of say the same stuff. So uh, just to add On to the monitor discussion, from their perspective as a pixel art fan, the Toshiba AK and the now MS9 chassis are the best combo. I have the full serial or the full model number in the description, by the way. When it's found in the Taito Egret 2, because of of the ability to rotate the monitor without assistance from another person or worry about necking the tube, it's the very best arcade option. Though the one downside is the rarity of parts and limited auctions that come up for sale with that unit. They've seen one in the past year, and it is not cheap. That AK Nanao MS9 is reliable, or the AK, slightly different version of that, but with the Nanao MS9 is reliable, lower maintenance than the Blast City, or no worry about the black goop of death. And the image is perfect for both 15 and 24 kilohertz arcade pixel games. They also have a consumer Toshiba 32AX60, and the image is very similar and looks amazing. Next time they'll open it up, Next time they have a moment, they'll open it up and confirm it is an A-series tube, similar to the one in the NAC, but at a larger size, so it won't be compatible with the MS9, just a similar look. 
There are reports of smaller Toshiba sets using Orion tubes, but they can't confirm. They also have a JVC AV27230, which is a nice companion to an Astro or Nunet City. They need to check that their JVC is a Thompson A68, similar to the Wells Gardner arcade monitor. It looks fantastic, as long, and as long as you don't mind a bonded yoke, it's a solid choice. For 31 kilohertz, your best bet would be if you could find a D29CO51 and the Toshiba PF in the new Net City. That's your best arcade option at a larger size. It's a white whale, but they did see one for sale on Yahoo Japan earlier this year. It has a buttery smooth look and reminds them of a large format, high quality computer CRT. They've only used one in an arcade, so they can't speak to the home maintenance requirements, but it's something to keep in mind. On another note, if you're really particular, chassis and monitor combination matter. They don't like the look of the Hitachi tube in MS9. It's not bad, it's just not the same as the Toshiba or Nanao MS9 for them. What Mike Moffat's done with his MS9 mods seemed like the holy grail, including a mod for 31 kilohertz. And while that will remove the choice for 24 kilohertz, if you're looking to do 480p like Naomi and others, that seems kind of like a no-brainer. Plus, you could do the G1 mod to keep the improved contrast, but fix the slightly softer image with the MS9 over the MS8. I plan on doing the G1 mod, by the way. Uh, Game Them Up did a video showcasing Mike's mod, which I will put in the description. Another option is the MS9, uh, MS2932 31kHz only chassis, but it's beyond their experience other to, than to say it exists. They've also passed on a Toshiba PF and Sanwa chassis because they didn't want to deal with the maintenance hassle. In the end, it looks, uh, looks are subjective, and most might not care over minor details, but if you could find a local arcade, talk to the owner and ask about the tubes in the arcade machines that you like when you're visiting. Maybe you can get an idea of what you'd want for home use. Also, for TriSync, here's the arcade list projects of TB tube replacements. So I will drop that link in the description as well. So once again, you know, thanks so much to Jeremy for sharing all this info. I think this is great stuff to note for people that want to know the little details about it. But for me personally, I would still grab whatever you can. And if you need 31 kilohertz support, maybe just look for a PC monitor, a PC CRT monitor and build a secondary station with that to save yourself a ton of money. But if you could stumble across all of this, hey, go for it. Next up, Billy Carrion wanted to share an alternative way to utilize the Memcard Pro and X station for backing up your save games from older or other memory cards. I'm going to pop copy and paste what Billy said and post that in the description. And it's really up to you on what method you prefer to do all of this. I showed some of it in the X, uh, the Memcard Pro launch video where you basically just copy from one over to it, and then you could open it up in your PC in order to manage those files. But Billy has another workflow that I think if I read it out loud, it would seem overly complicated, but if you read it yourself and you kind of work along with it, it's actually pretty easy. So I'll just leave that choice up to all of you. Uh, also, Billy mentioned that they uh, they had switched their screen name, and I really appreciated that because all the time I end up confusing people. And I think the most common scenario is when I'm at like an expo or something, and somebody comes up and says, hey, I'm Billy, and I assume that's the first time I've met them. So I talk to them for a while and then realize, wait a minute, aren't you the person who did that thing, the thing over on the, and oh, wait, you're a tonal, right? So thank you for letting me know, Billy. And also, if you ever meet me in person, just make sure to throw out whatever name I'm probably going to remember you the most as, uh, just because I just could never remember names. I could always remember stuff, but 
the worst at names, and especially when there's multiple to remember. So uh, I'll leave the link to what Billy suggested in the description. And uh, once again, thanks for reminding me of the name change. Next up, the Remora wants to know if there's any project for using a wired controller wirelessly. They have the old school reproduction Hori pad and would really like to use that wirelessly, hopefully something like a modified Blue Retro adapter. So I remember seeing pictures of something like that floating around, and it might have even been on the Blue Retro GitHub, to be honest with you, but it was always like a proof of concept, a test station, not a solid product. Uh, There's certainly nothing that you could just click and order. So I hope somebody swings about to do that, though, and I think something like, uh, actually, kind of like the controller tester that Jan from Consoles for You designed, but with Bluetooth. So you have your main module with your Bluetooth wireless setup and all of that in it. And then you could just snap out the input modules for NES, GameCube, Super Nintendo. And that way you could just plug your wired original controllers into it and let it sync up to something else. Now, of course, you'd also have to have a receiver, but if you were already picking up something for the N64, GameCube, or some of the many other Bluetooth receivers that are out there using Blue Retro, then that shouldn't be too much of a problem. It wouldn't be cheap because you would have to buy two devices, the transmitter and the receiver, but it certainly could happen. So do any of you know a project like this? And if not, does anybody want to make it? I could reach out to Jan and see if he's got the ability to do that or if he even would be willing to take a risk on that product because with all respect to you, the Remora, I think that idea is great, but I'm not sure how many people would want to buy that versus just standard receivers. Maybe a way to get about doing that is to have one big block of controller plugs on there or controller, controller receptacles, and you could select which one. So it's one block with like five different controller inputs on it. You select which one is active and there's one Bluetooth module in there. I don't know, that might be easier overall to make, but I'll reach out to Jan and see if he's some, that's something that he's done. And if anybody's already working on that and selling it, please let me know. Um, or if it's just proof of concept at this time, maybe somebody could start selling it. Next up, Belmont had a failed mod. They were trying to do the RGH Xbox 360 mod, which required an insanely small VIA to solder to and required removing solder mask. All was going well until after extracting the NAND, they couldn't get the console to boot into Zell. They went back to the motherboard to touch up what they thought was a really clean connection and just made it worse, and they're pretty sure they burnt out that tiny solder point. The point to all of this is that when it happened, they can't help but feel like a failure and lost some confidence. Have you guys ever screwed up and just didn't quite know how to feel? They learned from their failure, failure, so I guess that's the takeaway, right? Sorry for the sob story and any advice on how to move on from this loss would be much appreciated. So uh, honestly, um, you know, well, welcome to being one of us, right? This is what we do. And welcome to kind of learning from your mistakes. So I, I want to give some words of advice and encouragement to you and anybody else who's kind of in this position, because stuff like this happens to everybody from beginners to the most experts of experts should happen sometimes. So you just got to ask yourself the typical life questions, right? Like first and foremost, you know, you approach this the exact way I would have. You realized you made a mistake. You didn't blame the Xbox. <laughs> you didn't, you know, you, you didn't blame the small via. You were just like, oh, I, I messed up. So great. You, you know, you figured that out. And then you've already approached this like, okay, so you learned from your failure. So it's the, just the typical life stuff. All right. Here's what happened. Why did it happen? And where do we go from here? And one of the most important pieces of advice I could give is if you're frustrated and you're in the middle of a mod and something like this happens, 
walk away. Just turn off your soldering iron and just wait a day or so and come back to it. Don't try to push through. You know, you're not a pro modder that has to pump out 10 consoles or you don't make your money for the day. You're just working on a project for yourself. And there's so many different factors that can go into why you might be making a mistake that day. And some of it's mental, some of it's environmental. It doesn't really matter. You know, if, if you had to screw up, just let it be, sleep on it, and then kind of come back and reanalyze it. Why did you make the mistake? Were you like me and bought a cheap soldering station, not realizing that for dollars more, you could have bought the right one? That's fine. Everybody goes through that, something like that. Um, did you really need something like a magnifying glass helmet for it, which is pretty cheap. Most people could afford it. Or would you rather have gone to something like a microscope if you're going to be doing a lot of these? Um, you know, were your hands shaky that day? Did you just have too much booze the night before? Like you know, it happens to everybody that's had a drink has occasionally had one too many. It's, it's just life things happen. So try to figure out what you did wrong and then try to figure out what to do next. And I mean this next thing with absolute love and respect, but do you really want to do it again is a very important question. If you're somebody who enjoys this as a hobby and you want to learn how to do this and get better so you could mod another one and mod your other consoles and this is just fun, like people who like rebuilding cars or detailing cars, it's the same thing. Some people are just like, ugh, I don't want to wash my car and other people are like, oh, look how, look how fun this is. Look how nice I could make this. I did this myself. Make that decision. Because at that point, if you're like, I don't like this at all, and I don't want to spend money to get all new equipment because I did screw up and buy the $1 AliExpress special like most people end up doing at least once in their life, hire a modder. That's the perfect time to just go, you know what? This isn't my favorite thing to do. I'm going to give it to somebody who's an expert that could blow through this in a fraction of the time and has done a million of them so they know what to do when this happens. But I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm just reminding everybody. I'm not telling you to not do the mod again. I'm just reminding that as an option, reminding you that that's an option. Woo! I only got a few sips of this wine and I can't even get these last couple sentences out. But hopefully this is all coming out positive because I mean it to be encouraging and I mean it to complement all of the right things about the situation. Everybody makes a mistake, but you're already approaching it correctly. And you just decide if it if you want to keep going and how you want to go about doing that. And Honestly, you know, what how what advice do I have to move on is to to just kind of figure out what cheers you up in that scenario, because every live stream I've ever done, I've made a mistake, sometimes big ones. And I like making fun of myself. And, you know, so that does seem to offend people, but screw them. I'm not feeling bad about making fun of myself. That's on you. That's not me. So you know, whatever, make a joke of it. Don't talk about it. Talk about it. Whatever you would normally do to cheer yourself up. For me, I make fun of myself. I talk about it openly. I learn from that mistake. And the only time I get really embarrassed is when I make the same mistake over and over. Sometimes it's still funny, like when I finish a very complicated project and forget to plug the power in, because that's a mistake that's super dumb, but also doesn't hurt anything. I don't have to start from scratch. I'm just going to plug the stupid power in and then try, try again. So, you know, as long as it's not little things like that, you know, don't make the same mistakes again. Do whatever you can do to cheer yourself up when it happens and then just decide how you want to move forward. But Honestly, you know, it just sounds like every other modder in the scene has uh, has gone through this. So I'm not cheapening your account. I'm just saying, you know, welcome to being one of us nerds. The Pask wanted to follow up on the conversation we were having about finding a Bluetooth transmitter so that they could use their Sony Bluetooth headset along with their retro setup. 
And they had a suggestion, but they definitely wanted to let people know they only had one pair of headphones to test with, and at the moment only had one transmitter to test. Everything seemed to work, so I'm still happily share what the PASC said, but they, they basically just said, take all this advice with a pinch of salt, but they still want to share it anyway. And uh, I, I read through this. Obviously, I'd already answered this once. I liked what they had to say, so I'm confident in sharing it with uh, the PASC's own disclaimer in there. But... In their researching, it turns out there are limiting factors to the latency of audio, and it depends on the transmitter and the receiver. So one of the protocols, the aptx LL, low latency, is available for most headphones. Their Sony WH-1000XM3s doesn't support the low latency, they only have aptx HD. Later model Sony headphones, Bluetooth headphones, abandoned APTX almost completely as they favor their own proprietary codec, which is LDAC, both high quality and low latency. LDAC is as close to lossless audio quality as we currently have via Bluetooth. However, if you do a quick search for LDAC transmitters, then you quickly see that most of them only allow optical digital inputs, at least the more affordable ones. So for the PASC's headphones, they ended up using a SCART switch that has two outputs. One goes to their PVM and the other goes to their OSSC. And then they just use one of those HDMI splitters with audio extraction to pull out digital. That is a perfectly good way to do that, by the way. And mo almost every revision of the OSSC has a good ADC. The RetroTINK 5X has a perfectly good one for this use, not for MD4A analysis, but if you're doing MD4A, you already know that you're going to need some crazy equipment anyway. And we're all very lucky that, generally speaking, ADCs are much easier than DACs. So the best way to sum this up is if you bought a cheap $20 audio digital to analog converter, it's probably going to be meh at best, like the ones in those HDMI splitters. I mean, in the context of a cheap device that does all those things, I like it. Just saying. However, a cheap $20 analog to digital audio converter is probably going to be fine because there's a lot less to it. Um, and there's a lot less that could go wrong in that. I'm oversimplifying audiophiles. are probably going to want to punch me right in the nuts for saying that. But I think in the context of what we're discussing here, we're pumping retro audio through a Bluetooth transmitter. Anything, any way that you can get it to digital like that should be fine. Um, so... In order to do this, though, the PASC picked up the FIO BTA30 Pro transmitter, which is about 130 bucks, and it supports all of the codecs that you could throw at it, which means it's the most versatile for low latency audio to a wide variety of headphones. For other people that want the same setup but don't have access, uh, you could just uh, to that you could kind of get uh, any of the other DACs that we talked about, and of course you could look for the most or the more expensive ones, or try to run it through any other equipment like stereo or, or splitter or something else that could extract it. So I think this is great info. I will gladly link to this transmitter that the PASC found. And if anybody has any suggestions for this, please let us know. But generally speaking, I think this is good advice. Uh, if you need a cheap ADC, grab one of those too. Um, I haven't done MD4EA testing on them, but I have one here. You know, I'm going to leave a link to that. I haven't done MD4EA testing, but I've been told by people I trust it's fine. Fine in the same respect that you probably wouldn't use it for MD4A testing, but for this scenario, it should be okay. Um, and also, please let me know if anybody knows of cheaper transmitters that would be good enough in this scenario. I don't feel confident testing this myself because the only Bluetooth headsets I have here 
are either the absolute garbage $10 ones I posted up on Twitter a while back that I just leave in a drawer for when I, you know, it's late at night. I don't want to turn the TV's volume up. Or I have the, uh, I forget, the JBL ones, whichever the ones with the, audio, you know, noise canceling, the in-ear ones. And I bought those specifically for when I was riding the subway and just was tired of getting headaches from all the noise. So quality and latency were never, ever a factor in buying any of the headsets that I have. So I'm definitely the wrong person to test this, but I'm more than happy to share the links for everybody. Next up, Lopo needs an adapter that allows them to use their wired PlayStation 2 controller on a PC running Windows 10. And they're specifically looking to play Final Fantasy XI. So that's an important piece of information, because while I've never played a Final Fantasy game, yeah, I know, everybody gets pissed when I say that. My little brother loved them. He tried to get me into them when I was a kid. I tried. It just wasn't my thing at all. But point being, I don't think Final Fantasy, or at least Final Fantasy XI, is a game where latency is super important. Please correct me if I'm wrong here, but in the context of a role-playing game where you don't need lightning fast you know moves and reaction time things like fighting games or old school side scrollers like even the original mario brothers where you got to absolutely time your jumps perfectly then latency isn't going to really matter you just need it to work so i looked up and i thought there might have been some brook converters but i think it's only the other way i think it's allowing usb controllers on ps2 so if somebody knows a brook adapter because they've been known to be pretty low latency please let me know so that i'd be able to to link and to write that up or something but my advice is twofold first of all this is one of those rare moments where just trying like an eight dollar adapter on amazon is probably fine it's probably gonna have not good latency but if you only really need it for turn-by-turn role-playing games and especially because you can get it with Amazon Prime and return it if it doesn't work right, just give it a try. Lopo said some reviews on Amazon said they just didn't work at all. Just give it a try and see what happens. Um, try multiple USB ports too, just in case. But I would think taking the risk where all you would lose is your time and you could return it and it's 10 bucks, just give that a shot. And then hopefully check back in the comments and maybe somebody else would have a really good controller adapter that they could recommend for it. The PASC also recommended using a more modern controller with Bluetooth, and I would also kind of take all of that into perspective. So let's say you already have a PlayStation 2 controller that works totally fine. You don't own a modern PlayStation controller, so just picking up this cheap $10 adapter might be perfect. But if your PlayStation 2 controller doesn't work, or you need to buy a new one, or you need to buy a rebuild kit, and you already own a PS4 or PS5, does your PC already have Bluetooth built in? And if not, what about like a $10 Bluetooth adapter like I have linked on the Mr. Page? I'll leave a link to that as well because it's also there's also a Bluetooth and Wi-Fi one. That might actually be a better solution because those modern PlayStation controllers are very low latency anyway. So that might be a really cool way to go about doing this. So it's not what you had asked, but I definitely wanted to float that perspective just in case that might be easier. Because if you got to go out and buy a bunch of stuff anyway, maybe you already have something that could kind of do what you need to do for about the same price. So just wanted to point you in the right direction, but hopefully that was some decent advice. Seacon was looking into hosting PlayStation 2 games on their NAS and playing them over the network on their original PlayStation 2. But they were wondering, is Retro NAS required to do this? And yeah, mostly. So here's the thing. Most NAS boxes, Synology, Drobo, you know, whatever else, other brand that's out there, 
they have the ability to load apps, but RetroNAS can't really just be loaded altogether on. If they have the ability to run virtual machines, that's a possibility. I'll get back to that in a second. But right now, there isn't any short-term plan to getting those implemented because each section of RetroNAS would have to be implemented as its own plugin. And that's like a rewrite of the whole project. So while Dan and Sorek have been doing an absolutely bang up crazy job with this project, if somebody else wants to step up and start porting those, cool. I would actually suggest doing the PS2 first, to be honest with you. Uh, and also Simlinks, do a Simlink one for um, so that the same links on your NAS could connect to many different projects. But I think those would be the two ones that I would want to see first anyway. So. That might be something in the future, but if you're looking right now to accomplish this, you could look at a few different methods. You could check out that video Tito from Nacho Productions did a couple weeks ago, maybe months ago now, about using a Raspberry Pi connected directly to your PlayStation 2. And then instead of having local storage, just point that to a share on your NAS. I believe if you're going, well, my opinion is if you're going to get a Pi and do this anyway, Maybe you put RetroNAS on the Pi, but same method. Rather than have local storage connected to the Raspberry Pi, just connect it to your share on your NAS. And I'm sure if people aren't aware at first, they're, why would you want two devices? That's dumb. Eh, not really, because that means you could also just have a hard power switch and only power on RetroNAS when you need it. So if you install a bunch of the other stuff and you're worried about any kind of network securities, you just have a physical button to press. Uh, now, sometimes people might prefer pressing a button. Other times people would prefer logging into a web interface to do that. It's really up to you. And of course, you could also do the same theory with a virtual machine. So if you have a server or basically a PC that you leave on 24-7, you could build RetroNAS on that. I don't know if any of these NAS boxes support it. If any of them do, please let me know. I might try to see if I could borrow one just to test this exact scenario out for you um, because this is that's definitely a big deal. But you could load the virtual machine where you essentially just have RetroNAS running in a virtual environment on a different device. Same thing, pointed to the network share that you've created on your existing NAS. I'm assuming that's not what you would want to do, Seacon, because if you had a PC that you left on 24-7, you probably wouldn't have a NAS running 24-7, but I wanted to just talk about that in general. So for you, might might just be buying a cheap old pie and linking to it like that, uh, but kind of decide what your total solution would be. And if somebody listening wants to try to start porting some of the stuff over, please let me know. Uh, also, next, am I aware of any work of the same sort of ISO or ROM loading functionality being worked on for Dreamcast or GameCube? So for GameCube, that exists. You have to get yourself a GameCube network adapter. And then you also have to get the latest version of Swiss and find a way to boot that. But that's it. That should totally work fine. Uh, and it would work basically the same exact way. I can't remember if you need RetroNAS functionality for that, but it's definitely in there. So I don't know if you just need a network share, but that's already doable. For Dreamcast, there's a method where you could use, I think, a Pi Zero, plug that into a mode, and then it makes the mode essentially sees a USB stick. But what it's actually doing is emulating a USB stick, but pointing it to a share on the network. I have not had a chance to test that. And in fact, I'm still looking to sell my dream or trade really, because I don't have the time to be buying and selling, but I'd love to trade my Dreamcast Sports Edition, all original, working great with matching controller for some absolute beat to shit Dreamcast with a mode in it. So that way I could start testing this stuff and um, 
see if I could help out. I do really wish that there is some kind of Dreamcast mod available that allows you to retain the CD-ROM drive and connect over the network to load games. But I've talked to a bunch of people far smarter than me about that, and all of them found a lot of bumps in the road to making that happen, at least in the short term. So a mode and a Pi Zero is probably going to be the best way to go about it, but that's going to be kind of tricky. Hopefully I could pick one up and do a guide about it. Uh, lastly, uh, am I aware of any resources for just determining which consumer TVs might have the same tubes as an arcade cab? Yeah, that was the one we talked about before I linked to at the end. And in fact, I, I'm going to just copy and paste it in two different spots in the uh, in the comments or, or not in the comments in the description, because why not? Right. Make it easier to look up. But yeah, uh, so that basically sums it all up. So good questions. Good luck with your NAS. And please let me know if you have any questions. And Maybe I could even start testing as well. Well, that's it for this time. Hopefully everything still flowed nicely, even though it was my second time around. But if you have any questions at all, please ask them wherever it is you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I like just hanging out and talking and scrolling through in real time like I did twice today. So anyway, thank you so much for all of your support. I really appreciate it. It's what's keeping all of this stuff going. And hopefully these Q&As are still kind of fun for people to hang out in. But anyway, thanks again. And I'll see you next week.